welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the best laid plans edition. My name is Brent Whitmire. I'm an editorial and features writer, and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, September 11th. Things do not always go as planned. For instance, Graham Thompson is sick today. But on the federal level, we've had P. Gate, possibly the weirdest campaign disqualification story ever. Stephen Harper has brought in a new fixer, the Wizard of Oz. On the municipal level, Edmonton fired its general manager yesterday. And perhaps aware of how things can go badly, Rachel Notley's caucus has been holed up in Banff for a fall retreat. We'll talk about that, plus the province's possible plans to shut down coal generation. As always in the press gallery, I promise we'll leave all mugs unsullied. <laughs> Here in the studio, before they've been thoroughly vetted, we have city columnist Paula Simons. I've said many things on Twitter. <laughs> and provincial affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Good morning. You two look fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you, Brent. As do you. Oh, thanks. Uh, let's start with the federal campaign. The polls have been, you know, kind of split for months, three-way tie, uh, suggesting minority government uh, for whoever kind of comes out on top. But it seems in the past couple of days, the conservatives have been acting a little more urgently. Miriam. What do we know about Linton Crosby, the new campaign consultant brought in by the Conservatives? Well, you're right. His sort of um, uh, moniker is the Wizard from Oz uh, because he's known to sort of uh, really orchestrate these successful conservative campaigns in different countries. Also, he's from Australia. Yes. So that's the Wizard from Oz. Oz. Yeah. Gotcha. Reference. Got it. Thank you, Paula. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, he's been brought in now sort of late in the game in a very long campaign, I, I suppose halfway through it, because the conservative messaging has really just been knocked off track. They haven't been able to really focus on any of the policy announcements that Stephen Harper has been making across the country. Instead, they've been facing repeated questions from reporters on all number of controversial uh, things that have dogged the conservatives for months and, and, and years now, including the Duffy trial, the $90,000 uh, Nigel Wright check, most recently the Syrian refugee crisis and you know accusations that the conservatives haven't done enough to open Canada's doors to to more um, refugees from that region given uh, Canada's involvement in the bombing campaign there it, people are sort of pointing to this as uh, the conservative attempt to to try to get back on track hold on to the messaging which is has typically been the conservative party's strong suit but they're really faltering right now and there have also been there's also been some grumbling about Jenny Byrne who we've talked about on this um, podcast before She's the Conservatives' national campaign director. There were some some reports that she had been sent back to the, the National War Room because of sort of some internal disagreements over how she'd been handling mm -hmm. uh, the campaign to this point. It's interesting, though, because yesterday the Conservatives were saying that, that when they brought uh, Linton Crosby in, oh, no, he's not new. He's been with the campaign for months. And there might be some truth to that because Crosby's reputation both in Australia and in Britain was for running campaigns that played on racism and anti-immigration feeling and played up the xenophobia in order to win votes for the for right-wing parties. I don't know if that's the right messaging for Canada right now at this moment and it may explain some of the conservative reaction to the outcry over the Syrian refugee crisis, because if Crosby's been giving them their strategic advice and direction, maybe that's why they've sounded 
so xenophobic. Maybe that worked for David Cameron in Britain. Maybe that worked for Howard in Australia. I'm not sure that that's going to work in Canada right now. Hmm. Another thing that he's known for, though, is a strong analysis of sort of polling data and really sort of fine-tuning campaigns, uh, local campaigns, too, based on on what the local polling is showing. Uh, And so it'll be really interesting to see whether they take sort of a hyper-local sort of candidate approach to the campaign or whether they focus more on sort of national uh, issue-specific polls and sort of see whether we see the Conservatives get back on on messaging track uh, because certainly they haven't been. I couldn't tell you really off the top of my head what any of their most recent uh, policy announcements have been because so much of the discussion has focused on issues that relate to their governing and their record on governing, which is you know, the challenge when you're running as the incumbent government, especially after so long, you've now racked up this long record that people can measure themselves against. The only saving grace they have is that the opposition is so evenly split between the New Democrats and the Liberals, and there hasn't been a breakout for either of those parties. At this point, if there were one united progressive left of center party, Harper would be toast. I mean, the thing that is, the only thing that is keeping the Conservatives competitive right now is that even split between the Liberals and the New Democrats. And with neither Mulcair nor Trudeau having been able to break out of their 30% level either, um, that's what still makes this so interesting. And it's why you can see constitutional law profs all around the country, you know, gunning their engines because, you know, there have been, the internet has been filled with essays and blog posts and columns this week about how do minority governments work? How do you have the confidence of the House? How do coalitions work? Because I think no one anticipates that on election day we're going to get a clear-cut victory. Turning to the other uh, other two possible prime ministers, you know, it could be anybody's game. They're both in town, or they were in town this week, uh, Thomas Mulcair as we speak, um, and Justin Trudeau earlier this week. Last night, Thomas Mulcair's bus was actually parked right beside the journal. Are these stops perfunctory stump speeches, or is this a sign of possible new ground opening up? in Alberta. I mean, it is interesting. We uh, saw Stephen Harper come to Edmonton very early on in the campaign. And from my following of the coverage, his stump speech here sort of changed a little bit, uh, given Alberta's new sort of political reality. Uh, And and so he took pains to warn voters against uh, taking an NDP gamble. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And it wasn't the first time he'd taken a swipe at the NDP government in Alberta. And so I think what we are seeing, especially with Mulcair, was a bit of a, a... variation on that stump speech as well where he's talking about the fact that they want to win government in October just like the NDP won government in the spring in Alberta so they really are fine-tuning their message to sort of reflect the political reality here using it to to whatever advantage they see fit with the conservatives warning voters that it's going to lead to you know unfettered spending and and higher taxes and the NDP saying you know this is our real chance to to bring change and no one thought we could do it here in Alberta and look we did it and now we can do it federally as well. Trudeau has been on a real sort of uh, infrastructure policy binge, I guess you could call it, talking about the the um, huge investment that they would make in infrastructure. That plays well in Edmonton, I think, because Edmonton often feels like we're sort of left out. We, we feel <laughs> that way because it is true, sadly. <laughs> I let the columnists say that. 
Um, <laughs> and so Malcare today as well is sort of uh, using uh, that same theme to make his announcement today. He uh, made his announcement in Churchill Square, which, by the way, they called in their press release Winston Square. Apparently, Malcare's uh, campaign for change is also changing Edmonton landmark names. Mulcair's national message is much harder to sell in Alberta. Uh-huh. And so despite Notley's success here provincially, I think Mulcair's national platform doesn't resonate in Edmonton in a way that Trudeau's has the potential to. But you know, there is still a residual sulfurous smell on the Trudeau name. And I still talk to Albertans who might agree if they were you know, blindfolded with every part of the <laughs> Liberal Party platform, but they won't vote for someone named Trudeau. At the end of the day, you know, uh, neither Trudeau nor Mulcair, I don't think, is an easy sell in this province. If they win seats here, it's going to be more on the strength of individual candidates than on the strength of national campaigns. Well, and certainly uh, Rachel Notley has distanced herself, if anything, from Mulcair. Yes, Mulcair is here and she is in Banff. Although Sarah Hoffman was at the rally, Mulcair rally, and introduced him. So there is a provincial uh, NDP sort of connection, of well, course. And it's really funny because the Wild Rose was on Twitter last night. This is an outrage. It's an yeah. outrage that Sarah Hoffman is there. And I'm thinking, seriously? Well, Twitter <laughs> does tend to, to bring out the hyper-partisans. And I mean, of course, uh, you're, you're right. Wild Rose supporters do vocally support uh, federal conservatives and call out progressive conservatives when they don't support federal conservatives and instead support federal liberals. So, uh, you know, there is a lot of that playing um, off of these different political leanings. And, and in Alberta, it always comes back to the energy politics. Um, interesting to, to see that sort of, you said, mentioned the, uh, the bus serving as the backdrop. And uh, also Trudeau earlier this week, his stump speech, he mentioned uh, infrastructure spending for the $1.8 billion Valley Line. Um, it just so happens <laughs> in Edmonton that we've had a little bit of a tough week for LRT. Do you think it's it's still a potential vote winner or is this, has this been a, a sort of a miscalculation on federal party parts? Well, people in Edmonton are understandably and justifiably angry at the way the Metro line extension to Nate has been botched. But I don't think that means that they're anti-LRT. It means they want to be darned certain that before we go ahead with the Valley Line that we're putting the stations in the right place and building it the (laughs) right way. But, you know, for all of the wailing and gnashing of teeth over the Metro line and its delays, it's been packed all week. And that's not just because of, you know, taking cars in and out of service. People want LRT. I mean, the whole reason people are angry about the Metro line is because they wanted to take it to Nate. A year and a half ago. So, you know, yes, it's true that people are feeling cynical and burned because of how the Metro line process has been botched. And it's very true that we don't want to repeat those kinds of errors with the Valley line. That said, I don't think that this means that we hate LRT. I think it means that we hate LRT when it gets messed up. I think taxpayers probably also hate the idea of of money being wasted. Do you think this could potentially push people towards the conservatives at all? No, I think that people, especially here in Edmonton, realize that, you know, a lot of the problems here happened sort of just at the at the city managerial sort of level, the way the administration handled it and the way the different contracts came in. And I don't think that it necessarily is going to translate into any sort of swing at the federal political level at all. It could change the dynamic at city council. 
I mean, certainly, I mean, Thursday afternoon, late in the day, Simon Farbrother, the bright, young, progressive city manager who was a champion of LRT, was given his walking papers by city council. That's a big victory for Mike Nickel, uh, who's sort of the conservative, small-c conservative leader of the opposition, if I can put it that way. You know, for Don Iveson, this LRT fiasco certainly takes some of the buff off of his shine and, you know, sets up a dynamic where you could imagine next municipal election that Edmontonians are going to say, look, no more shiny mega projects. Let's just, let's finish the ones we've got before we start anything new. Whether it will have a resonance for the federal campaign, I just don't know. Turning to that sort of decision yesterday to, to turf Simon Farbrother, Don Iveson was kind of going out of his way to say, this isn't about the LRT. Uh, <laughs> But, but what was it? Do you think it was, this was the decision, this was kind of the thing that pushed them over the edge? They could no longer sort of stand pat. It seemed inevitable to me that someone was going to have to, you know. Some, someone has some, to walk the plank. Yeah, you know, some head would have to roll after all of this and, and sort of the way that the information came out and the fact that, you know, just days before the, the line was supposed to open, Edmontonians were learning about these, you know, ridiculous traffic delays and, and, and this and the slow service that they were going to have to contend with and, and, and all of that. For, for me, it didn't surprise me that we saw somebody lose their job over this. For the mayor to suggest that it isn't to do with the LRT, I think, is... Uh, disingenuous he's, he's trying to take the high road we've maybe. all watched this play out over over the last few few weeks and well frankly for the last year and a half you know since the opening was uh, initially delayed uh, you know the the fact that the news came out didn't surprise me i was a little bit surprised that it came out yesterday and not sort of today this afternoon perhaps but i think it is also true that simon farbrother committed the greatest sin possible for a senior bureaucrat he left his political masters flapping in the wind i mean the biggest it's not Simon Farbrother's fault that the trains didn't run on time. It's not Simon Farbrother's fault that the girders, you know, bent on Grote Road. It's not Simon Farbrother's fault that the steel didn't arrive for the Walterdale Bridge from Korea. What Simon Farbrother didn't do was tell council what was happening and repeatedly left council in the dark about things that, as the political leaders of this city, they had a responsibility to know about. And that's what I think they can't forgive. I think everybody likes Simon Farbrother. He's a very personable uh, guy, gets on well with the media. But time in and time out, he didn't communicate to the city councillors what was going on at the city. And that's what they can't forgive, either personally or politically. On the provincial side, it's been fairly quiet this week, but I'd like to turn to a subject we've talked about at length in recent weeks, uh, climate change. We had uh, the Pembina Institute conference earlier this week. What's the news that came out of that, Miriam? The province is sort of talking about the need and the desire to try to transition away from coal more quickly than uh, was originally planned. I mean, this was originally, I think, about a 50-year plan. And it's not really clear how quickly they're going to be able to do it. It did. It was interesting that day because, of, of course, uh, Minister Shannon Phillips spoke at the at that conference. I don't know if I can remember if former Tory environment ministers would have spoken at Pembina conference. I guess or it, not. I mean it's possible. It's not jumping out in my memory. It, yeah. yeah. I, anyway, I thought that was interesting. I mean, 
and they also use the the government also used that day to release some uh, air quality standards figures and talk about the fact that Alberta is on track to have the the worst air quality in the country. And immediately, I sort of saw conservatives on on Twitter saying, you know, they're laying the groundwork for some really serious sort of uh, regulations to be brought in. We do know that the climate change panel is ongoing. We do know that there's a big climate conference in November, and and the government is pretty focused on that. Thought that was interesting, and 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 I think in many ways it is perhaps sort of beginning to lay that groundwork. And I mean, this is one of the things that the NDP really campaigned strongly on was improving the province's environmental records, strengthening the, the province's climate change regulations. You know, they moved very quickly to double the carbon levy on heavy emitters. So, you know, it didn't surprise me, but uh, I just thought it was interesting sort of the pace that that came out uh, mm-hmm. on that day this week. Going after coal is politically very astute. People don't have the same... I don't know, emotional attachment to Alberta's coal industry <laughs> that they do to the oil sands, which is kind of funny if you think that Alberta was really, uh, you know, our modern economy based very much on coal. But coal not only creates greenhouse gases, it also creates localized air pollution. And so going after coal p- powered electrical generation. Uh, right uh, west of the city? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it not only allows you to look like you're being serious about climate change without taking a big hit at the oil sector. But it allows you to be the local champion of local air quality. Now, the problem is that the corporations that have built giant coal-powered plants at great expense are now saying, wait, excuse me, if you're going to shut us down, we, yeah. need some kind, we want some kind of compensation. Yeah. And that's where things are going to get tricky. But I think that it's very astute. I mean, we cannot tackle climate change by putting up LED Christmas lights. I mean, that that is, <laughs> that is not going to save us. Single solitary polar bear. Getting serious about coal allows this government to look like they're serious about greenhouse gases without really goring the, uh, the oil sands ox. Goring, Al Goring, uh, <laughs> uh, and we've seen we've seen coal being tackled in other jurisdictions in Ontario, and uh, Barack Obama has really his administration has really sort of targeted coal. Do you think it's it's feasible that we could see the coal plant shut down? The thing that makes the model vaguely sustainable is that natural gas prices are extremely low because we don't have hydro in Alberta. I mean, it's easy for Quebec and Ontario to say, oh, we don't burn coal very much because they have huge hydro resources, which Alberta doesn't have. So the only way we can replace cheap electricity from coal here is if natural gas prices stay low. Burning natural gas to make electricity is much cleaner, but there's a finite amount of natural gas too. So, you know, there... There are no magic answers to giving you perfect environmental energy. You know, wind power kills the birds, hydro dams kill the fish. You know, in, until we invent cold fusion or we get a real Wizard of Oz, uh, we, there will always <laughs> be an environmental price for whatever energy resource we, we choose to exploit. But coal right now doesn't have a lot of friends, and so it's an easy political target. It's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we share something we've enjoyed, often but not always, with a political connection. So, Paula. I am going to recommend an interesting piece. It's in the New Yorker, the September 7th edition. It's by Stacey Schiff, who's a historian, popular historian, based sometimes in Edmonton, but mostly in New York. She has a new book coming out on the Salem Witch Trials, which doesn't come out till October, but there's sort of a pricey of the book in the September 7th New Yorker, and it's fascinating because it delves into the politics and the social history that drove the Salem Witch Trials, and of course, the parallels to other political witch hunts, metaphoric and otherwise, is very apt and very timely. 
Sounds good. And Miriam? Mine today is, uh, it's like an explainer piece in the uh, Globe and Mail. It's called, it's by Joe Friesen, and it's really um, uh, useful, I think, resource for people to sort of begin to wrap their heads around the process of refugee sponsorship in Canada. The multiple hoops someone has to go through, the applications, the, the people that they have to have waiting here in Canada to accept them and take responsibility for their accommodation and costs. Uh, and so it's called refugee, refugee sponsorship can be a long, complex process. Here's how it works. My pick this week comes from the Toronto Star, where Jillian Stewart, the former managing editor of the Calgary Herald, uh, digs deep or injects steam into the oil sand sector. Uh, this is part of the Atkinson series, uh, the Star's annual in-depth series on public policy. Uh, a lot of the ground here uh, will be familiar to journal readers because we covered, uh, did an extensive oil sands uh, feature a couple years ago. But it's interesting to revisit the same sort of subject matter, you know, from an Eastern publications perspective in a dire economic uh, situation and with climate policy at, at a crossroad. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or at the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula and Miriam, for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next time when the show may turn chaotic and go completely off the rails. <laughs> When has it ever not? <laughs> you better find a fixer. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.